this is an oddity, uh, a struggle, a difficulty for us. I think as humans, I know certainly in our cultural context, I think globally, but I don't know every culture, so I don't know, but I know for our culture, it is certainly a great struggle <laughs> to live simultaneously in two spaces, one of grief and pain and tragedy and, and, and weightiness, and then one of, of hope and joy and celebration and awe. We feel as a culture, we feel as a people that we don't have the permission to move seamlessly in both those worlds. We don't get to be in a world of heaviness and grief and pain and then just step over to a world of awe and wonder and hope. Uh, we feel like one takes from the other or if we are in one, then we cannot be in the other. Like we cannot be in celebration when we are cloaked in grief. We cannot be in grief when we are experiencing great joy. But this is a cultural norm, not a biblical norm. The biblical story is one where actually every day we live in this great collision. We live in a world that is not yet the new earth, not yet a place with no death and no pain and no suffering. And yet we are a people who belong to a world where there is no death and pain and suffering. We live in the already, yet we live in the not yet. And every day we encounter in our lives the great war that is between flesh and spirit. The great war that is between eternity and the temporal life where death and sin still have some room to, to, to push and shove. And so actually our whole life is the consistent, constant sense that there is brutality and beauty, grief and joy simultaneously. And we are a people that are very uncomfortable with those two spaces existing together. So we try to move from one to the other. And then it feels like whiplash. We just spent now minutes together talking about, thinking about, lamenting about, grieving with, praying for something of extraordinary tragedy, extraordinary grief, and extraordinary weightiness. And now we are supposed to walk into First Timothy, into a passage of extraordinary hope and awesome awe. And we're just supposed to do it. Just walk out of one into the other. No, no, not out of one into the other. We walk into both. It's been a profound couple of days for me because on Thursday was my birthday and Thursday morning I got the call minutes after the accident and spent most of my day at the Wells house. But then Thursday night I went and had dinner with some of my dearest friends and my wife and celebrated a birthday. And at first I thought this is not possible. But Jesus by his spirit was kind and said, of course it is. You belong to me. Pain and joy are always together around you. You just ignore it. So now they are both present in giant ways. Take your cloak of grief and walk into your evening and celebrate fully and let grief be present, but don't let it steal. And take your celebration and allow it to be part of what your morning was. And then on Friday morning, it was my wife's birthday 
And Friday morning, I was engaged with the Wells again. And Friday night, we celebrated her birthday. And again, giant ends of spectrums, the deepest of human pain and the highest heights of human celebration in the same day, one not stealing from the other, both present. And then Saturday morning was our church-wide picnic celebration park day. And before I drove over to that, my wife and I went and spent the morning with the Wells and then drove to the church picnic and threw eggs and put things around our ankles and raced and uh, watched and ate and celebrated with our community. These are the things we as the people of God get to do. And it is the way we stand before death and defy it. You are here. We know that. We see you. We feel your breath on our neck. And yet we walk through you. And we stand in worship and stand in awe and stand in celebration of the goodness that is on this planet that is of God. And this is what we will do in this room because this is how we defy death. So we will walk not out of our lament and grief into worship and celebration. We will carry the cloak of grief with us into this and it will make it richer. And there in this space that we are about to enter in First Timothy, their words of hope will form in our souls and we will watch the kingdom of God come and enter the kingdom of death and redeem. Last week, when we closed out our time in the passage we were in, in 1 Timothy, we closed our time out in this little declaration that Paul wrote to Timothy uh, in this paragraph that he was talking about the false teachers and the necessity to bring the truth of the Holy Spirit, the truth of God, the truth of his word to confront their falsehood. And he mentioned some behaviors that were the fruit of their false teachings, the forbidding of marriage, the forbidding of eating certain foods. And he made the statement that we, we, we must not do these things because everything that God has given us is good. And so we must walk into that and we must not forbid things that are of God. But then knowing that we would be like, yeah, but how do we know what he said so the way we will know as we walk through life, what we walk into, how we walk into things, how we navigate things is that we have his word, his truth dwelling richly within us. That we are constantly devoted to the absorption of the words of our rabbi, Jesus, our rabbi, Holy Spirit, who has given us words breathed on them. And they are now like dust that became us because God breathed on it. They were words that became life because God breathed on them. And so they are our place to come and to absorb and to devote ourselves to so that when we encounter life and it requires wisdom, it requires discernment, it requires decision, or we encounter life and questions bigger than we have answers for come our way and dare us into doubt and dare us into fear that we can come back and let the life and wealth and beauty of the word of God come and measure for us what is true and what is good and what is right 
so that we might come to life with a clarity that is not of our own or of other humans, but of God. Paul, in that passage, said to Timothy, when you confront these teachers who are teaching falsely, understand the urgency of this confrontation because when we are encountering truths or believing truths or teaching truths that oppose God's word that are not of God, they are not only of human origin, but they are of an origin that is spiritual as well. That all of the things we know, learn, and understand, that their origin is either from the one spirit who is truth, our rabbi, or from some other spirit of which, whichever one it is, since it is not the Holy Spirit, it is demonic. And so teaching that opposes God's word and God's truth is demonic. Like you're like, wow, it's a shocking reality. And any teaching that opposes the word of God, opposes the teaching of God, because it is demonic, it is spiritual in its nature as well, it does have fruit. And its fruit will always eventually be in some form death through legalism, lawlessness, or any other misguided savior that becomes our savior or a thing we put our trust in. Truth that is not of God will always lead us to a set of beliefs or behaviors that will lead to the fruit of death. So what Paul is saying here to Timothy is we must confront any falsehoods. We must confront uh, any myths and speculations and things that are not of God because by their nature, they are extraordinarily damaging. In the same way, the truths of God, we must devote ourselves to them because their fruit is extraordinarily, profoundly beautiful. It is life. It is light. It is freedom. So we stand in the space where Paul is saying, these are not small little things, slight differences. These are life and light and freedom or death and destruction. That's what he did last week. And it was out of that that he said, so... Man, if you want to walk through life and you want to be measuring life in a way that would lead to the fruit of life, light, and freedom, then you must know the truth of your rabbi so that you are discerning not by truth you have absorbed from some version of something, but that you are from here. Because is there truth to absorb that is not uh, opposed to God that's outside of these words? Yes, of course. God gave us creation and science and we can learn things of him through that that he didn't write down in here. God gave us uh, the ability as humans to take thought and put thought to it and, and wrestle with things and we would articulate things that are not in here. But how do we know which of those things are actually aligned with his truth and which are not? We cannot unless we know what? The word. So there was an urgency to that. In this urgency... 
which last week we started kind of getting that sense of stirring within, man, I need to devote some more time, some more energy, some more space to the absorption of God's truth in my cultural context where I spend so much time in other things and and not in this. Now what Paul's going to do in this next passage is give Timothy uh, another layer of urgency, but in this sort of beautiful, whimsical way to say, I know what I just said is a really, really big thing. And it feels really big. And it feels like maybe it's overkill on my, this is demonic teaching. Go tell the leaders. They need to stop. But I'm telling you, Timothy, it is that urgent. That's kind of what he's going to do. And then he's going to elevate the beauty of this invitation, this calling for us, for Timothy, for the church in Ephesus, to devote ourselves to the constant and consistent growing of knowledge of God's word by his spirit. So grab your Bibles with me and turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to be in chapter 4, and that's where we're going to jump into today, and let us see where God takes us down this path and what he reveals to us. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, we are going to be in verse 6. So we just came out of uh, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 4, where I just described and remember Uh, Where we came out of from there was that in the early part of the letter, Timothy said, we have a charge to bring to this church. The aim of our charge is love without a doubt. The charge is to these false teachers doing these things and these behaviors being born out of that false teaching. Then Paul said, what we need is godly leaders because when we have godly leaders who know the word of God and live the word of God, then we won't have these problems. And whether you are leading out of serving or leading out of overseeing, that is not the point. Serving and overseeing are equal, beautiful means by which we lead in the kingdom of God, which is not what the world says. And so he then said, isn't godliness a mystery? How it's always seemingly like different than every philosophy the world holds, but we live by that. And then he went into the gospel as it stands. And then he said, now confront the demonic teaching and tell those leaders their teaching is demonic. And I don't know about you, but I have that sort of personality where when you tell me I need to bring really hard news to someone, um, I find ways to take that hard news and to dip it in chocolate pull it out of the chocolate, have the chocolate set, and then hand the hard news to someone dipped in a thick layer of chocolate. So as they have to eat the hard news, they think they're eating chocolate. And then I get to say, I confronted them rightly. And they get to say, you confronted me with chocolate? So sometimes when we want to bring hard news in our cultural context, we want to find all sorts of ways to bring the hard news in a way that doesn't feel as dramatic. You don't want to walk in and tell leaders in a church like this, your teaching is demonic. It's coming from demon spirits uh, and you are damaging the church tremendously and you are standing opposed to God. You need to stop immediately. You kind of want to go, you know, Paul's a bit concerned about some of the things you're saying. I'm sure there's some things you're saying that are good. I want to just give you some good news first and affirm your value and affirm you. And then I want to share with you just these few little things. What what is he saying? He's saying, Timothy, go in, confront this and do it now and do it hard because it is dangerous for them. And now look what he says to Timothy. Verse six, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
I love that Paul already here perceives rightly that he's just asked Timothy to confront something in a way that might sound like overkill. But he's like, Timothy, trust me, if we as a people who follow Jesus, who have a clarity of the gospel and have a clear understanding of the gospel, and we have a clear understanding of good doctrine because we have been in training, it is not something we've just speculated about, then you need to go, we need to go to one another and say, hey, Uh, This is what I know and see to be true. You are believing and or teaching something opposed to that. Uh, That is not helpful. It's very damaging. And if we do that for each other, we are doing a good thing, Paul says. We are doing a good thing. We are doing a thing that serves Christ well and serves each other well. The aim of our charge, Paul said at the beginning of this letter, is... Love, and he reminds Timothy here what I'm asking you to do in confronting false doctrine within the body of Christ is something I'm asking you to do because it is an act of love. It is a good thing and it is a helpful thing to the people you're confronting, to you and us, to the church, to the kingdom of God and to the glory of God. So when you do this hard thing and you feel like, man, this is going to feel like the opposite of loving someone well, don't feel that way because what they are involved in is that urgent and you know it because you know the gospel, because you know sound doctrine, because you know the truth. So Timothy, you have the truth, you know the truth, you have trained so that you're not one of those people rolling in, telling someone they're teaching wrongly and when they say, how do you know? You say, because I don't feel like it's right. This is an important space that he would bother to say to Timothy, the reason that you can go and confront is because you are well-trained in the truth of the gospel, well-trained in sound doctrine that guards the truth of the gospel, is because oftentimes when we as a collective, I'm not just talking about Mosaic, I'm talking about the followers of Jesus in any local church context in Ephesus or here, when we collectively are untrained, collectively uh, enter the word of God uh, on a surface level, and we collectively speculate about what we think is and is not true, then when we confront each other, we are confronting each other with speculation. And that is of no good. It only creates division and is not helpful. So what he's saying is for us to be a people that can confront false teaching when it is among one another, false things we understand, believe, or teach, we first need to be what? Trained in what is right and true. So isn't it extraordinary that he would say, Paul, that as a church, if you want to be the church for each other, that is going to be most helpful How many of you should be trained in understanding the gospel rightly and understanding doctrine rightly? All of you. The more of you that are rightly understanding the gospel and rightly understanding doctrine because you have rightly trained, the more helpful you all are to each other and then you are collectively to the world. Isn't that awesome? 
And the less trained you are, the more dangerous you are to each other, the more dangerous you are to the world, the more dangerous you are to the kingdom of God. Because you will likely actually be part of the problem of speculation and mythology rather than actually solving anything. So what he says is, Timothy, you need to confront them. When you do, it is a good and right thing. And you can confront them because you are well trained in what is true. Now look what he says. He says, having, verse 7, nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So here he kind of takes the opposite end of the spectrum. He says this, when you, Timothy, go and confront these false teachers, you are confronting irreverent, silly myths, speculations, right? You have the truth of the gospel. You have sound doctrine. You are trained in it. When you go to them, have how much to do with speculating and trying to explain things. Don't have anything to do with that. You bring what is God's truth to the table. How much should we have to do with speculation and mythology and all of that? It says it in here. How much? Nothing. Should have nothing to do with that. We should neither be absorbing it constantly nor believing it constantly. Certainly not spelling it out constantly. When we take a speculation and we hold that speculation and say, oh, this speculation feels right, seems right. It hits, it resonates. And then we go and we spill that speculation out into our spaces of teaching, our social media spaces, our conversations. What Paul says is, have what to do with all that? Nothing, nothing. It is not a good idea. What you should be trained in, what you should be embedded in, uh, what you should have embedded in you is the clarity of the gospel and sound doctrine guarding the gospel and then enter life learning other things, but always measuring them through those lenses. And if there is any confusion as to whether a thing is really measured, don't go teaching the thing, go teach the gospel, right? And why is he saying this? Because when he started this letter, what did he say was the problem that these false teachers had and were involved in? I'm not even going to just tell you. I'm going to read it so that you go, oh, yeah, that's right. He's not making this up. He's actually reading it. First Timothy chapter one, verse, uh, verse three and four. Listen, this is like the literally the opening of the letter after the greeting. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he says, rather than these leaders devoting themselves to the word of God, to the clarity of the gospel, to sound doctrine, what have they devoted themselves to? Speculation. They've devoted themselves to interesting thoughts about many things like our culture does. The more articulate and wonderful and rhyming it is, the more it sounds just right. We're like, oh, this one's good. How do I know? Because on social media, we always put it on little posters now. 
like little quotes. Look what I heard from a friend. Yay. And he's like, these guys are going in. They're digging up all sorts of weird stuff out of Genesis. Then they sit around and chat and speculate. And then once they've speculated, they bring their speculations as truth. They are not stewarding God's word at all. They don't know God's word at all. And that's why they're able to do this. They need to stop. And now he says it here. So go confront them. So what ought they to do? They ought to be great stewards of the word of God. They ought to devote themselves to the word of God. They ought to give themselves to that. In our world, we said it last week. I'll say it again. When we are engaged in collecting our uh, information and our opinions and our thoughts primarily from things that are social media or news stations, you are almost guaranteed that most of what you're hearing is speculation. Are you with me? At a minimum, someone is speculating about something else or someone else or something that someone said or why they said it or what they meant or how they meant it or what's really going on or what their heart is or what their motive is or what they're up to or how awesome they are or how stupid they are. All of it. I mean, you just listen, you're like, it's just one big ball of speculation. And on occasion, they do accidentally say something truthful. And so how on earth do you know when the little truthful thing happens? You're like, oh, that thing's true. That's like true. It's just true because it's true. Well, you cannot possibly know that unless you know and are devoted to and understand the depth and beauty of the gospel and the totality and beauty of sound doctrine, which is the word of God. If you do, then you can listen to the speculations and let them weed through and go, oh, there's something that actually aligns. That's good. Instead of saying everything that feels right to me aligns with this. And I go, how do you know? Do you know this that well? I, I'm, I'm sure I do. The point is, what Paul is saying is that in order to be a people, and he's saying to Timothy, in order to be a person that can go in and confront what is speculation, have how much to do with speculation? Nothing. And be how devoted to what is true? Totally devoted. Okay, so watch. Watch. He, he, he goes on, and he, and he actually says that. He says, for those of us that follow Jesus, this should be our devotion. Uh, I lost my space. There it is. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Listen now. Listen to what he says. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. There's the word train. Now he says this. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So are there things that we can do on this planet that are not the devotion to the study of God's word in order to produce a reverent awe and devotion to God in order to produce a set of behaviors that align with God's way? Are there other things we can devote ourselves to that might be helpful? Yes. The answer is actually yes. You're like three of you are like, I'm saying yes. The rest are like, uh, it's a trick question. I'm not going to say yes. The answer is actually yes. Is it helpful to steward your body well, to eat the kinds of things that are healthy for you uh, and, and to make the things that aren't the minimums, not the excess? Yes. Is it helpful to exercise some? Wake up in the morning, take a walk, go to the gym, whatever. Is it helpful? 
If you've been to a doctor who understands how our bodies work, what do they say to you? If you don't exercise and you don't eat well, it's unhelpful, right? Your body doesn't like that. And then it tells you by going crazy and eventually dying. So you're like, you should really be helpful. Is it helpful to gain greater knowledge and perspective of the cultural context in which you live? Yes. Is it helpful to understand deeper and more beautiful things about science and about how the world works? And yes. Is it helpful? There's lots of helpful things, lots of things you could dedicate yourself to and ought to spend some of your time on because they are of some value. Their value is for this present day. Are you with me? They have value to your present day. When you do these things, dedicate yourself to the right kinds of things, then their value is valuable and it helps your present day. But there is something that isn't just valuable because it helps your present day. Its value goes beyond our present day. He says, look, uh, some physical uh, exercise is valuable. It is a value. Don't stop doing it. But it is of some value. What is of value in how many ways? What did he say? Every way. So is there any way, any way, that godliness is ever not helpful. That's what he's saying. He's saying other things, there are ways that can be helpful. Sometimes there are ways that can be unhelpful. But godliness, the devotion to God, because we know who he is and who we are in him, and then the conforming of our behaviors to his way because we trust him. When is that helpful? Always. And it is helpful for the coming age. So what I love that he did, watch what he did. He didn't say, there are things that are helpful in this present day, like exercise, for example. But godliness is valuable for eternity. He didn't say that. He said, there are things that help are helpful for our present day in some ways. But godliness is helpful in our present day and in eternity and it is helpful in our present day and in eternity in how many ways? All of them. What is the loss or the risk of godliness? Zero. There is no risk. There is no loss if you are pursuing Godliness, and let's remember what godliness is. It is not the conforming to right behavior exclusively. Godliness or piety is the conforming to the truths or way of one to whom you are devoted. So actually godliness is about the devotion, not about the conforming. But it is about the kind of devotion that leads to conforming. If you say, I am devoted to God, I love him with all my heart, but I don't trust him at all, so I do it my own way, that is not godliness. Because you're saying, I'm devoted, but you're showing that you're not. If you are conforming to the ways of God, because you know he's going to punish you if you don't, that is not godliness. Because you are not devoted to him, you are afraid of him. Godliness is the conforming to the ways of God because you've fallen in love with him, because you trust him, because you found him to be trustworthy. And so you just do what he says because you're not an idiot. 
You with me? Like a stupid person would feel that way about a God, trust him that much and then go, but I'm gonna do it my way. Nobody does that. When you're that devoted, then you conform. And so what Paul is saying is to Timothy, godliness, the pursuit of godliness, what is its risk? Zero. What is its loss? Zero. When could it possibly be unhelpful? Never. Is it helpful now? Yes. Is it helpful in eternity? Yes. Is it helpful in every way? Yes. So watch this now. If you have set before you two things, something that is always helpful, always a win, always awesome, always going to lead to life, always going to lead to freedom, always going to lead to light, now and forever, in every way, it is just in every possible way, always helpful. Never, ever the risk of not being. Offering number one. And you got offering number two. On occasion, sometimes helpful. Definitely not for eternity. Definitely not always. And probably sometimes not even now, but sometimes now. How much time should you devote to the sometimes possibly helpful can happen on occasion? How much time? Well, maybe not zero, although you wouldn't go badly wrong if it was zero. But I, I, I might say this. Let's just, let's just be great. Some. Some of your time. Some of your time should be dedicated to things that are sometimes helpful and helpful for a season while, while we breathe and live. Should you exercise sometimes? Should be helpful. How much time should you dedicate to exercise? Some. And uh, I want to be a great steward of my body. I exercise 19 hours a day. <laughs> wonderful, but not wonderful. Because we should never dedicate a great deal of our energy and time to things that only have some value temporarily. How much time should we devote to something that has all value, all the time, now and forevermore? A lot. Dedicate and devote a lot of your time to that which has Great value. A great deal of your time should be dedicated to that which has great value. And a little bit of your time should be dedicated to that which has a little bit of value. But we are humans. So we do the opposite. We dedicate a great deal of time to 150 things that combined have a little value. And many of them don't have any value. And some of them are downright not valuable. And then we dedicate a teeny, tiny bit of time to the one thing that has great value now and forevermore in every way. It does feel a little unnerving, doesn't it? Like you do feel a bit foolish, don't you? And maybe you don't, but I do. I'm like, wow, Paul, like that's quite a way of putting it. And he's like, I'm just telling you what is. So look what he says. He says this. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, before I read the saying that is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance, that's an interesting sentence, isn't it? This saying is worthy and trustworthy and should be fully accepted. So we did some research because when you say this saying is trustworthy, you're usually doing what? Quoting somebody else. You're like, hey, you remember the saying? No, no, no. It's trust. We know that to be true. It's certainly true. 
So we did some research and what he says next, we, we couldn't figure out in any way, shape or form that he's quoting anyone. Now, maybe he is quoting someone, but this is a guess. Don't go like, Renaud's made up a theology. Uh, this is not theologically orienting at all. It's just a guess, a, a Paul guess, a personality guess. You know, when you have a teacher uh, that you're around a lot and you're the disciple of that teacher or you have a professor at school that you take like 19 classes from, all teachers or people you're around a lot, or for example, people that are in your life a lot, a spouse or a there are these things that they constantly say. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's one. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul started this letter and said, the aim of our charge is? See? So could I say this? You guys know what I'm about to say, don't you? The aim of our charge is? And you're like, oh, it's that thing he says every week. You're, when you're around people and they have this thing they always say, you might say, I, I'll do this sometimes, We'll be in a circumstance. I'm with people that know me well. And I'll say, well, you know what I always say about this. And they're like, oh, here he goes. And then I might say, we live on planet death. But there's one. And you're like, yep, there, there's, there's something Renault says a lot. Uh, because he's that kind of stuff, right? Paul saying this to Timothy. And who is Timothy? Timothy is a close disciple of Paul. He's been around Paul a lot. And I can almost imagine Timothy as Paul writes, you know the saying that is trustworthy and true. And Timothy knows he's reading a letter that just said, we need to devote ourselves to the word of God. We need to work hard and train. This is kind of a heavy thing. And now Paul's going to say something. And even the way the sentence plays out, I can totally see Paul having said this sentence a million times before. Just walking down the road with a couple of his buddies. And they're all like, man, it's been a long day. There's just a lot going on. Or man, it's been a hard day. And then Paul might say this. Well, you know, you know, we toil and we strive for godliness because we have a God who is a living hope. So I can almost imagine Timothy going, oh, here we go. It's the toil strive sentence, but it fits so perfectly. So whether Paul said this a thousand times or whether he's quoting someone else, or whether this is the first time he's saying it, one thing is true of this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for two this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially or certainly of those who believe. To this end we toil and strive. Another way of saying that is the reason we toil and strive the reason we choose to devote ourselves to the word of God, to sound doctrine, to the gospel and its clarity, to the spirit and to the way of God, the reason we conform our lives to the way of Jesus, the reason we work and we toil and we strive for these things other than other things is because we have a living God and we have come to discover that he is the only savior. That's what he's saying here. When he says he is the savior to all, it's not universalism because Paul wrote much of the other rest of the New Testament. And he's very clear. Jesus didn't die and all the humans are saved just because he died. Those who believe in him, they are saved. Those who do not yet believe in him, they are not yet saved. So he's not saying Jesus saved everyone. He's saying we have discovered our living God and he is the only savior. He is the only hope we have. We have a savior. His name is Jesus. 
This person has a savior. His name is Career. This person has a savior. His name is Buddha. This person has a savior. His name is Identity. This person has a... Paul's saying, nope, nope. I, I get it. Everybody thinks they have a savior. But we have come to discover there are how many saviors? One. And he is the only savior. And he will always be the only savior for how many people? All of them. There is no human that will find another savior and go, I found the other one. I found the other one. Turns out there were two. Jesus is the savior for most humans, but there's also a savior for some other humans. Paul's like, we toil and strive to this end because of this, that we have found the living God and he is the only savior for any human and every human. And he is certainly the savior of those of us who believe. In other words, we know he is the only savior, though the rest of the human race might not yet know that. But for those of us that know that, he is certainly our savior, is he not? And since he is our savior, we are going to put how much of our hope on him? all of it. And so we toil and we strive to know his word, to know his gospel, to live in it, to live in his way, because he is everything we have that is hope. Essentially what Paul is saying is I've taken all of my chips, all of them, every bit of my hope, and I've shifted all my chips onto Jesus as savior, the living God. I will now toil and strive to follow him to know his truth, to live his way, to live his life. That's what I'm going to do. What does the world feel when you watch someone take all their chips, their whole life savings, their house, their car, their everything, and go, I think this is going to be the big win, and shift all the chips onto red? How do you feel about that? anxious. The person's crazy. Do you want to lean into them and say, you might want to keep just a few, like just a few. You're out of your mind. And here's what Paul's saying. We have done something that is out of our minds. We have taken how much of our hope and put it on Jesus. All of it. When the world looks at that, what are they going to say? You might want to keep some of it and put it on some other things because what if Jesus isn't enough? What if he's not the big win? What if he's not the savior? And what Paul's saying is, if he's not the living God, then we're all lost. So we've put everything on him. And the reason we toil and we strive to devote our time and energy to his word and his way and not to the thousands of speculations that come our way second by second is because we have found him to be the living God, the savior of all, and certainly our Savior. So my chips are there. Timothy, people of Mosaic, divert your time, divert your energy to devote yourselves to the exploration and understanding of God's word and sound doctrine in the gospel and give some of your time to other valuable things, but not most of it, certainly not all of it. If all you give to the study of God's word and to the disciplines of the faith and intimacy with Jesus is some of your time, then you don't give enough. Not because God's like, I'm disappointed you give so little, 
but because you shouldn't be a fool and say, I have something and know of something that is of great value all the time in every way. And I'm going to give a bit of my time to that. And I know of many things that are of some value some of the time. And I'm going to give lots of my time to all of them. Fools do that. Fools do that. And Jesus says, don't be a fool. And Paul says, so for us, we toil and we strive after this, to this end, that we know the living God and he is our savior. So bring planet earth, bring enemy of God, bring death, bring sin, whatever you want to my table, whatever you want to my face, breathe on my neck, but you have no reign here. For my king has conquered you and my king has revealed to me a day that is coming where you will be no more. So enjoy your moment for it will be fleeting and we will walk through you into life for our living God reigns over you. There we stand. There we live. That's what we devote ourselves to. Pray with me. God, thank you for your incredible love for us and the graciousness by which you patiently and beautifully, quietly reveal yourself to us over thousands of years and now over hundreds of weeks and quietly one verse, one passage, one book, one story, one moment, one conversation at a time. That you are so patient with us to be a people that are in process growing more and more clear on what it means to devote ourselves to the pursuit of you so that you will become our everything in true ways and that we would slowly keep shifting chips that we hold, hope that we still place on other things over to your table till eventually we can say as Paul did, all my chips, all my chips sit on one person If he is not the savior, I'm dead. I lose everything. If he is the savior, I gain everything. But I know him to be the living God, savior to all, certainly mine. So my chips are on his table. God, may that become our position in life as we move closer and closer to you, trust you more and more by toiling and striving to understand, dig into, and embed richly within us your word by your spirit. Make it so for us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.